For it is a credit to you if, being aware of God, you endure pain while suffering unjustly. If you endure when you are beaten for doing wrong, what credit is that? But if you endure for doing what is right and suffer for it, you have God's approval. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was abused, he did not return abuse. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that free from sins we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were going astray like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So though we're just a little bit out of order, we are still in our uh, series this uh, post-Easter season or Easter season called So What? So in in case you need to be reminded, you may not, um, but in case you do, uh, we're asking the question, Christ has been raised. That is fantastic, wonderful, good, earth-shattering news. But what does that mean? For us, as a result of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, with everything being different in the world now that death has been defeated, what does that mean for us? How are we then to live as those who are a people of resurrection? Uh, again, we are still in the season of Easter. So this is the sixth, fifth Sunday of Easter. Again, I'm all discombobulated, so if I get that wrong, I apologize. But uh, in, the, in the calendar of the church year, as you see up here, we're about there where the star is, right? We're getting close to the end of the season of Easter. So we have two more Sundays in Easter and then Pentecost. Um, but we are in the season of Easter and we are continuing to ask and to celebrate the resurrected life that we are given as we go through First Peter. Again, 1 Peter was written as a, what we call a Catholic epistle. That means it was sent to a large group of churches in what we would now call Asia Minor, right? So these are people who are living throughout the Roman Empire, particularly in the province of Asia, um, who have come to know and believe that Jesus is the Christ. And they go forward in their days and in their lives with the cry in their lips that Jesus, not Caesar, is Lord, and because there are people who are, who are proclaiming that there is another Lord, there in fact is a greater Lord than Caesar, they find themselves out of step with the culture and the people around them. And so sometimes what this means for them is that they are actively opposed by their culture. Now in this time, probably when Peter's writing this particular lesson, they're not widespread empire-wide persecution. That will come in not too many years after Peter pens these letters. But right now it's largely, probably speaking, localized persecution based on the people's unwillingness to participate in some of the things that they might have participated in before or some of the things that the culture around them says they ought to participate in because they are living in Rome. So this might be something like sacrificing to the emperor, for instance, right? So, so in, in, in Roman culture, in all the promises, all where, where Romans were, where Rome ruled, people were expected every year to offer a sacrifice to Caesar. 
Caesar was seen as a son of the gods, if not deified, maybe not at this point. They're still kind of iffy on, on where we are in the timeline and that. But, but they were expected to offer sacrifices. And these sacrifices were to the gods on behalf of the emperor. And, and they were what kept Rome in good standing with the gods. And so people who didn't participate would be considered outcasts, would be considered rebellious, would be called atheists, and often were because they were unwilling to do what was good for the empire, for Rome. And so the people in the the dispersion or the diaspora throughout the Roman Empire, the the people who were exiled, as Peter says, find themselves in these small groups, but largely exiled from a large group of friends, family, and out of step with the culture around them. Now, what we have here in 1 Peter 2, um, coming out of where Sheldon was last week, Paul goes, or Peter, excuse me, goes into something um, that, that has come to be known as a household code. So, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get a little technical with you for a minute, so bear with me because it's important with the overall understanding of our scripture this morning. So a household code, Rome, like, like many societies were, were very rigidly structured. And, and people lived within large households. And, and it could be the, that whether you're poor or rich, you kind of had this structure within your household. Now, this is not unfamiliar to us, right? Um, but, but in the Roman world, this household code was fairly well-structured and fairly well-known. It, it was a code by which the households lived by, kind of like the code of the elves in Elf. Right? The, these, these kind of rules by which people lived within their culture and within their households. Right? So at the top of the household structure, you had what was called the pater familius. Right? Or the, the father of the family. Right? The father's rule was absolute. Right? What the dad said went. What the, the pater familius said went in the whole household. And this household included right, kids and wives and servants and slaves, kind of all the way down the list. So you had the pater familius at the top, and then you had slaves, household slaves at the bottom. Right? And that was the, the local household. And this, this actually extended kind of empire-wide, right? Where the, the, the Caesar was seen as the ultimate paterfamilias, the benefactor. And the whole of Rome was seen as his household. So all of their society was structured in these very rigid ways. And their, their interactions with one another were governed by this household code. Okay? I know that's technical. It reminds me a lot of Downton Abbey, right? So any of you who have seen that show, right? This sort of kind of Victorian, right? Near the World War I, this age in Britain where, where especially households of, of the, the landed gentry were, were very rigidly structured, right? There were, there were instructions on how you would deal with one another in the family and how slaves or how servants were to deal with and who they could talk to and who they couldn't and where they could go and where they couldn't. Okay, so it is something similar that... Peter is dealing with here in 1 Peter. I know that feels very cumbersome, but it's important because our particular text today is addressed to a very particular people within the household. So if you were to just go and back up one verse, Peter actually is addressing slaves within households, right? So, so lo- at least in the context of what we're reading, it's important to note that this is kind of not universal teaching that, that, that Peter is giving. Um, we will take it and we will try to apply it universally, but, but he's dealing with a very specific situation that it's important for us to know about. Okay, so first of all, slaves had no say in who they belonged to, what they went, where they lived, what they did. 
Within the Roman society, right, as a slave, you were property of your owner. The religion of your owner was your religion, right? The, the activities of the owner were your activities. You did and said and enacted what your owner said. You had no volition of your own. So why that is important is that Peter addresses the slaves within this passage of scripture as if they are free people, that they are free to make their own decisions, to decide how they act, and even to decide who they worship. Now, this is important, right? Because in the normal household of Rome, you wouldn't hear this kind of, you wouldn't, you wouldn't hear a slave being addressed as a person who had any sort of volition, any choice in anything, right? They were slaves, But Peter is speaking to them as if they have a choice in the matter of who they worship, what they say, what they do. And this is important. Now, secondly, slaves couldn't do anything about their situation, right? They didn't live in a representative democracy, nor did Peter for that matter. So I want to say this. It shouldn't go without, I mean, it should go without saying, but I'm not going to let it go without saying slavery is bad anytime, all the time. It wasn't better then than it, than it was in our more recent history. Slavery was wrong. Slavery was bad. Slavery is not something we as Christians should ever endorse or be involved in. Okay? I, I, I know that should go without with saying, but I'm going to say it anyway because I think it needs to be said. Okay. So this is not an endorsement of slavery. And I don't think Peter is endorsing slavery. What Peter is doing is knowing that there are people within households, many who were slaves, who had no volition, who, who had no right to change anything, who had to say, what does it mean for me as a slave to be a Christian? So Peter is very, very specifically dealing with a people who had no power, who were, as we heard several weeks ago, on the margins of society who people would have dismissed as just slaves. And he's dealing with them as people who have a choice in the matter. And that's important. This is why Peter says we're slaves or we're free in Christ, right? That there is freedom in knowing Christ. And and earlier Peter will say, you are free in Christ, but do not let your freedom drive you to do things that are wrong, right? Do not use your freedom as a cause to sin, he says. And so all of that is within this understanding of what does it mean to live as a faithful people within sort of the circumstances in this context of which these folks find themselves. So it's just important for us to kind of have that context in our head as we're thinking through what Peter is saying here. Next week, we'll talk about it in a more broader context. Peter will talk about it. But here it's very specific to this group of people But but Peter begins by essentially saying to them that it is no benefit to anybody if we suffer for doing what is evil or wrong. Essentially, Peter's saying, if you break the law and get punished for it, what credit is that to you, right? You steal a painting, you get caught, you go to jail. Well, yeah, you should suffer for that. That is the consequence of what you're doing. So I don't know, it's like Peter at the beginning wants to say, hey, I just want to get this out of there right? He's not talking about suffering in general. He's not talking about about suffering even that's common to humanity. He's not talking about what happens when you get punished for doing something that is obviously patently and blatantly wrong, right? Peter's saying, if we get punished for doing things that are wrong, we deserve to be punished. But Peter wants to address very, very specifically 
what it means and how a Christian, in this particular context, a Christian slave is to act when they are punished for doing what is right and good. In short, for doing what is righteous, right? So, so in this case, what, what might a slave um, be doing that would require punishment, um, at least by their owner's thoughts, but that would be a righteous action on the part of the slave, right? So, so we could go very easy. We can say, you know, the owner says, I want you to beat this other slave, and the person says, I can't do that, right? My Christian duty is to not inflict harm on my brother or sister. I refuse to do that. That is something that might be a righteous action on the part of the slave that the person would suffer for. Another probably more broad, again, within that society, every person was expected to give a sacrifice to the emperor, at least on a yearly basis. And slaves were expected to do what their masters told. If the slave refused to do that, they might suffer persecution, a beating even, because they refused to do what was wrong for them as a Christian. And so they suffered for doing what is right. And so that is a very, very specific context in what we're dealing with, right? Again, I, I just want to say, we're not talking about suffering for doing things that are wrong, that are they're patently wrong, that we might say properly defined as evil, right? We're not talking about that kind of suffering. We're not even talking about this kind of suffering that is, we are, we are humans and we suffer. Many of you are suffering today. But that's not the suffering here that Peter is dealing with. He is dealing with very specifically the suffering that comes from taking a righteous stand against someone who has power or control over you, right? For the slave, it would be suffering for doing something that the master would punish them for, for us, something our government might punish us for, or our community might punish us for, for taking a righteous stand for Christ. Okay, Peter doesn't get into what it is. And so I won't get lost in those particular weeds today. But we need to contextualize this. The idea that the people who he's addressing to, at least some of them, are suffering because they have said, Christ commands me to live in a certain way. I won't sacrifice to the emperor. I won't murder or kill someone. I won't beat another person without cause, right? Any of that stuff. That's the kind of stuff that, that Peter is dealing with. And again, it's important to note that he is specifically addressing people who within their society are not supposed to have will or volition beyond what their master says. And essentially what Peter says is when it happens this way, the people ought not to be discouraged or sad or somehow think that they are being punished because they are suffering. In fact, Peter says, guess what? When you suffer for doing what is right, you are in good company. He says, when you suffer for doing what is right, you are actually in the company of the one who has gone before. You walk in the footsteps of Jesus. Because if we were to define the sort of archetypal, archetypical, yeah, that's the word I'm looking for, archetypical righteous sufferer, right? In, as Christians, if we were to say, who suffered for doing what is right, who would we say? Well, Jesus, right? Jesus suffered for doing what is right right? Like a lamb led to the slaughter. We read in Isaiah, right? No offense was found to him, right? He was pure and upright, all that stuff. He died because he said, the kingdom of God commands me to live, to act, and to speak in certain sort of ways. And the people around him, his contemporaries, and ultimately the, the empire of Rome agreed that said, no, you, this upsets our power. 
This upsets us. This is not right. This is forbidden. And so Jesus was not only tortured, but put to death because of the stance he chose to take as a person who is righteous, who follows what God has commanded him to do. And so this is the context. A couple things to note. There is no virtue in suffering for suffering's sake. Right? What Peter isn't saying is go out and court suffering because suffering itself is good. Suffering isn't good. God doesn't want us to suffer. God doesn't like it when we suffer. I think when we suffer, God suffers. Just like when, when we see someone we love suffering, it hurts us. We don't like it. And so I just want to say that, that, that we don't court suffering just because suffering itself is good. There is no virtue in suffering as suffering itself. What Peter wants the people to note, however, is that suffering does not imply abandonment by God. And suffering for doing what is right is not some way of like God saying, well, you're doing it wrong or you're not doing right, right, I, I don't, whatever. But it's not God's punishment. It, in fact, what it is, is suffering with the one who already suffered for our sake. He says, when you suffer for doing what is right, you join not only Christ, but those who have gone before in saying no to a world that acts differently. You are suffering for what is right and for what is good, and others don't always like what is right or what is good or what God says is right and what God says is good. And so Peter wants to be very sure to let them know that God has no, not only has God not abandoned them in their suffering, but that Jesus suffered first, that Jesus went before them, that he is the example even of righteous suffering. And so this, this text is not simply about Peter saying, it's okay when you suffer for doing what is right, because that doesn't mean God has left you. But Peter goes on to say and begins to teach, and this will carry on through the rest of this book, about what it looks like for us to suffer righteously. That that Jesus is not simply one who has gone before in whose company we should feel good in. But Jesus as the one who sets the example of how we ought to conduct ourselves when we too suffer for what is right and good and holy. You see, lots of us have different responses to suffering, especially unjust suffering. And what Peter wants to point us to is to say, we have lots of responses that we feel justified in, that we might feel are right and are good. But Peter says, I want to point you to Jesus who went before you, and I want you to note how he suffered. Now, let's be clear. None of us are going to do what Jesus did, which means Jesus suffered and died for our sins that we might have life. Jesus died once and for all. None of us will die once and for all. We all might die once, but not for all. So so we we can't be like Jesus in, in the salvific aspect. But Jesus and the way in which he suffers gives us an example so that if we should find ourselves to suffer for doing what is right, we have an example to follow. Peter lists several things that Jesus didn't do. 
when he suffered, he did not offer insult to those who were unjustly punishing him. Think about that for a moment. Right? Jesus didn't retort back in order that he might own, right, Pilate when Pilate questioned who he was. Right? He didn't respond angrily on Twitter or post it on Facebook. He did not return insult for insult. Right? What did Jesus go through? He was beaten, he was tortured, he was spit on. We're told that as he was on the cross, the people around him hurled insults at him. If you're the Christ, save yourself, right? He saved others, but he cannot save himself. And Jesus refused. I don't think he forgot. I don't think he was just too tired or in too much pain. I think Jesus made conscious decisions to not respond anger and insult when he was insulted in anger. In fact, Jesus instead of returning insult for insult, even blessed those who were killing him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. If we were to go back into John and and Jesus' conversation with Pilate, right? Pilate throws a whole bunch of stuff at him, and and Jesus, knowing what's in the hearts of people, knew that it was a false trial, knew that nothing was going to come of it. He refused to respond insult with insult, nor did he get all puffed up and haughty and prideful and say, do you know who you're talking to? If anyone could, right? If anyone had the right to say, do you know who you're talking to? But Jesus didn't. He asked questions, as he often did, right? If you knew the one who was talking to you. He refused to respond insult for insult. And though Jesus could have, he refused to respond violence with violence. Think about it for a moment. If anyone had the right and the power and the ability to say, guess what? I'm not going through this. I'm going to wipe out my enemies because I am right. He was right. But he refused to respond to their violence with violence of his own. Again, think back on that conversation with Pilate. I could call 10,000 angels to be at my side. If anyone has the right, the privilege, and the authority to do so, it's Jesus. And yet he didn't. He refused to respond to violence with violence and hatred and annihilation. He didn't go nuclear. He could have. He's the only one who has the right but he chose not to because not because he didn't have the authority, but because that's not the way of God. Jesus demonstrates in his suffering and in his death, the way of God. It was a unique event. Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. That's a very unique event. But the manner in which God chooses to go through that event and Jesus chooses to follow is an example of the character of God. When Jesus was accused, he chose not to lie. He could have lied to save his skin, right? I mean, if you don't have the right to get out of it by just saying, eh, yeah, I am the king, or whatever. But he refused to lie. He refused to speak falsehoods about himself or about someone else in order to save himself. Jesus shows us what it is to be righteous. 
And we're told that he entrusted himself into the one who judges justly. In Jesus' mind and for Jesus and for those who suffer with him for doing what is right, the judgment of the people who are inflicting these things or any of the people around, quite frankly, shouldn't or at least doesn't matter. Ultimately, what what anybody else says about me is not what is the most important thing. Am I right? Jesus cared more about what God had to say than about what Pilate had to say. Jesus didn't feel the need to defend himself or his kingship, which was rightfully his, before Pilate. It's often strange to read that, that, that story and see that Jesus doesn't really defend himself. When Pilate throws these things at him, Jesus doesn't defend himself. And it's not because Jesus couldn't or Jesus wouldn't. It's not because Jesus didn't have the words to speak. It's just at this particular point, Jesus says, I am going to entrust myself not to you who has proximate authority from Rome, but has no authority compared to God. What Jesus was concerned about is God's judgment of him as one who was following, who was suffering rightly, perhaps. He said the will of God is all that matters in this case. And so he refused even to give a defense because it was not to Pilate that he needed to defend himself. He entrusted himself to God, the one who judges justly. And so Peter establishes here and begins to talk about the ways in which those who suffer for doing what is right are to enact themselves in the midst of suffering. Even when we suffer for doing what is right, our first response is to defend ourselves to the people who might be accusing us. Our first response might be to insult those who insult us. Have you ever heard the logical fallacy of whataboutism? You do this, well, what about you? We want to insult those who insult us. Our, our, often our first response to, to even violence is, is to how we might act in, in similar ways. We, we, we think we can do it redemptively, but, but, but we're shown. And, and Peter says, wait a minute, is, is this how God chooses to act in Christ? And if we are to suffer, we need to suffer along with Jesus as he has taught us to do. I do want to make one point, however. Peter is addressing people who are powerless. Slaves couldn't vote. In fact, nobody who who wasn't a citizen of Rome could vote. And likely speaking, the majority of people to whom Peter is talking to couldn't vote. They couldn't do anything to enact change. They couldn't change the regime. The regime didn't change like that. And so I want to be very, very clear that, that what I'm advocating for here is not powerlessness and not doing nothing but rather acting in ways that are consistent with the character, the nature, and the example of Jesus. And this is where we need the Spirit all the more. Because guess what? Jesus never had a vote. In fact, I think the only person we have, like, who's a main character in Scripture, who's good, who had a vote, would have been Paul. So, so we are called not only to suffer when suffering is necessary, and I think necessary is the right word there, but we're also called to be a people who see what do we do when we see suffering, right? So Paul is addressing slaves, but, but, but we are not slaves. 
We don't, we don't live in the world that Paul lives in. Or Paul, I keep saying Paul, it's Peter. He's writing this letter. Peter, 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 Peter. We live in a different world and we have rights and privileges that they didn't have. And, and so for us, the call is to say, okay, how and when should we suffer under the example of Christ? And how do we respond and we react when we see suffering? And, and, and while those are two different questions, the answers are largely the same because we are to go about it the way that Jesus did. Jesus never took up arms against the sea of troubles, though he had the right. Jesus never traded barbs on Facebook with people who disagree with him. Oh, he spoke strongly sometimes. But Jesus didn't lie for his own purposes. Jesus never sought if he means to achieve good ends. Jesus never used his own power to further his own agenda. Even when he had the right to, he is and remains the king of kings. And yet Jesus goes about it differently. But one of the things I want to say here also is this. That following Jesus is not simply about avoiding certain things. Right? We tend to think of sin as things we should not do. <clears throat> And that's good. There's lots of things we should not do. We are saved from our sins. But one of the things that Peter points out, I got it right last time, that Peter points out here as he is writing to these churches is this. He points out that they are saved from sin, that they might live to righteousness. So think about that for a second, right? They're saved from sin. These are the things we don't do, right? But because we are saved from sin, because we follow Jesus, it means we open our arms wide to embrace things that Jesus embraced and the ways in which Jesus acted in the world. So his example is not simply what do you do when you're powerless and are suffering, but also how do you go forward in a world for the sake of those who are suffering? If we were to follow the example of Jesus, what did Jesus do? What is what his main, at least goal and purpose, the ultimate act of God in history is Jesus coming and saying, there's a bunch of sinners out there. In fact, all of us are. And Jesus says, all of you are sinners. And many people actively rejected him. And Jesus said, yet, nevertheless, I will die for them. Right? Did Jesus just die for the righteous people? I hope not. Because not many of us were there when we were first called. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Christ dies for his enemies, those who spit in his eye. Those who were crucifying him, he said, forgive them for they know not what they do. So Jesus shows us not only how to suffer, but also how to live for righteousness. When God sees suffering of sin in the world, God goes to extraordinary lengths, divine lengths, to deal with sin. God sees sin and sees how poor we manage it. And God says, I will become flesh. I will dwell among them. And I will give of my life for them. 
even in their acts of sin, killing Jesus was a sin, yes? Even in their acts of sin, I will turn to redemption. That's pretty amazing. And so Jesus shows us how to go. We'll never save people from our sins. That's not our job. That's not power we're given. But we are given the power to see suffering and to do something about it. Now we could get into some weeds here. I'm going to try not to. But the example that kept coming to my mind of people who said, I'm going to defy authority for the sake of the life of another who I may not even agree with. Maybe I've just been spending a little time in World War II lately, but think about those who harbored Jews in Nazi Germany. Right? If you weren't a Jew, you were pretty much okay. You might hate fascism, but you were okay. You weren't being persecuted for being a Jew. And yet there were people in Nazi Germany who, who out of some out of religious conviction, some just out of a human conviction, saw the suffering and said, I am unwilling to be a part of that passively. I'm unwilling to save my own skin f- just for the sake of me. And they invited people into their homes and they hit them and said, we're going to take the risk for the sake of the other, for the sake of the persecuted. Right? In strictly like don't do things manner, that's not something like they, were, they weren't, by just sitting there, they weren't actively committing sin. They were just passively saying, I don't need to be involved. But many, and I would say many in the church, saw this as an opportunity to say, guess what? We are not going to let these people suffer unnecessarily and unjustly. We're going to place ourselves even in harm's way so that they might have a chance at life. I don't know why Schindler did what he did, but he said, I'm going to defy the government and unjust law for the sake of these people because they are people. And I think in so doing, we have someone who is, whether they were doing it specifically or not, acting in the pattern of Jesus saying, I will do what I can to alleviate the suffering that I see. We have the power to vote. It's a very strong power to alleviate suffering. We also have the power not to vote, which is a very strong stance to say, we're not going to support something that is not of God. We have power that Peter's first hearers didn't have. How might we Say, God, what are you calling us to do to put ourselves in harm's way, perhaps, so that others might live? So we have the example in Christ of how to suffer when we have no power. We also have the example in Christ of how the one who is powerful chooses to affect liberation for humanity. And we are called to follow that way. We are called and saved not simply from sin, but to righteousness. We aren't saved just to reject sin. We should reject sin. Please reject sin. But having rejected sin, we turn ourselves and open our arms wide to how God might call us to live as a people of righteousness. 
when we experience injustice on ourselves, when we see injustice in others, how are we to live? And it's self-giving love. It's the love that Jesus shows us on the cross, the love that Paul talks about in Philippians 2, right? Having you the same mind that was in Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider his equality with God as something to be exploited for his own ends, but rather he emptied himself and he made himself nothing, taking on the very form of a slave for the sake of humanity, that humanity might live. That's the example we are to follow. When we're powerless and when we have power and influence, as most of us do in one way or the other, you're called to this self-giving love. Saying no to sin, but opens to the way of Jesus. In the church, especially the church in Nazarene, we have a word for this. It's called holiness. We sang a little bit about that earlier today. I mean, technically we planned that music service for Sheldon's sermon last week, but it fits. We're called to holiness. Called to follow Jesus. Not simply to say no to the things Jesus said no to, although we should. But to embrace the way of Jesus, which is often the way of the cross. Not seeking suffering for suffering's sake. Please don't do that. God delights not a bit in suffering. But if we must suffer, we know that we suffer with Jesus. And if we must suffer, we have an example to follow in the way of Christ. And this is holiness. The relentless pursuit of God's kingdom. And it is to this that we, as the people of God, are called as the worship team comes back up, I, I don't think we should pretend that this is easy. I, I want it to be easy. I want following Jesus to be easy. But nothing I read in the scripture says it is. Decisions are sometimes very, very hard to make. Sometimes it's difficult to know how we are to react. Nine people killed yesterday in Texas. How are we to respond? It is difficult to know. Anyone who says it's easy is lying. But we yet are yet called to speak out and to relentlessly pursue God's kingdom. Justice for the voiceless. Voices for the powerless. This is the life to which we are called. And we can't do it on our own. You may have tried to follow Jesus on your own. I've tried to be good on my own. But Jesus tells us that this is why he gives us the Spirit. the spirit at work in us individually and the spirit at work in our community. This is why Jesus gives us the spirit and gives us the church that we might together say, this is how we are going to move forward. Sometimes we agree, sometimes we disagree. 
we move forward saying, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe would not perish but have eternal life. We are called to move forward in saying, while we were yet sinners, while I was yet sinner, Christ died for us. And that ought to change how we treat other people, even the ones we think are sinners. You're called to this life to follow after the example of Jesus as we do so. Not by might, not by power, not by our collective good judgment, but by the Spirit of God at work in us as we discuss, as we discern his will together. So I'd just like us to think about that as our final song, as we sing together. About this call to life, not simply saying no to things that are wrong, but saying yes and embracing the way of Christ in the world. Would you please sing with us?